Hey, this is Kyle Eidelman from Southeast Christian Church, and I'm going to thank you for listening to the message today. As we open up the scriptures together, I pray that this message inspires you, challenges you, and is the right word at just the right time in your life. Enjoy the message. My family is always on the hunt for, uh, with growing young children, a good, clean entertainment on TV. And one show we started watching several years ago that seemed fairly clean and seemed to emphasize hard work and entrepreneurship that we really latched onto over the years is the show Shark Tank. It's that show where entrepreneurs will come on and they will pitch their business to these rich, sometimes billionaire sharks and say, invest with us and we can blow this thing up and make a bunch of money together. And over the years, there have been several, let's just say less than stellar ideas on Shark Tank. One idea I thought was just bizarre was this guy came on and he, his entire business was he would take potatoes, he would carve a message in them that you had sent in, and then he would mail the potato with the message on it to your friend. Another one that I thought was pretty bizarre was a business came on called Rounder Bum. It was underwear with padding in the rear to make your bum rounder. Don't remember if they got a deal or not. But the most bizarre of all of them to me was the business, the the pitch went something like this. A guy came on and he said, sharks, do you ever get home from a long day at work and you wanna enjoy a glass of wine, but you're by yourself and you have no one to share it with? Then you look at your cat and you think, if only I could share a glass of wine with my cat. Well, sharks, he said, now your dream can come true, introducing the new product, cat wine. And it was not literal wine, it was some drink made to look like wine that you could give a cat that the cat would drink while you drank your wine so you would be together drinking your wine. I thought, this is the dumbest idea I've ever heard in my life. The sharks were laughing at this guy during his pitch, thinking this guy's absolutely insane. Then they asked the inevitable question, what are your sales so far? And this is when I about fell out of my chair because he responded with, our year-to-date sales are $1.4 million. People are so lonely, they're drinking wine with their cats. What really bothers me is some of you are Googling this right now, trying to find it. And I do wanna point out there wasn't dog wine because only cat people do this, but I thought that's just another. (laughs) We love you cat people. But I thought that's just another example, right, of how badly we need community. And the premise of this series is that when our vulnerability collides with the truth of the gospel, we experience community the way God intended. Each week has built on the next. Week one, we did that stand up, sit down exercise to realize I'm not alone. I'm not the only one. Last week, we dug into that phrase from scripture, the truth will set you free. And we realized that Jesus says a no secrets kind of life is what leads to true freedom in him. Today, we're gonna combine those things and it will lead us to true community. Before we jump into today's scripture, I wanna jump back to John chapter five that we touched on last week. Remember in John chapter five is when Jesus goes to the pool of Bethesda, it's surrounded by, scripture says, the lame, the blind, and the paralyzed, all 
sitting there waiting for a miracle, Jesus in John 5 approaches one man who's paralyzed, been there 38 years every day, and Jesus heals him. Here's my question. Why doesn't Jesus heal everybody? Why does Jesus heal just one person? Here's the deep, theologically accurate answer. We don't know. (laughs) We don't know. What I do know is that it's similar to what he does today. I've been a Christian since I was a very young age, and in the course of my Christian life, I've rubbed shoulders with hundreds, I, I wanna say thousands at this point, of addicts. Twice, I've had a friend who's an addict whose story goes like this. I was in the throes of addiction, I met Jesus, I got free from that addiction and never wanted it ever again starting that day. One of them was alcohol, one of them was heroin. I've met Hundreds of other believers whose story goes like this. I was in the throes of addiction. I met Jesus. I still battle that thing as much or more than ever, but now I don't have to fight alone. I mean, their story is the story of Paul, right? Who says, I had this thing in my flesh. I asked God to take it away. And God said, no, I'm all you need, Paul. You got grace, you're good. So when we sing the healers in the room, which by the way, if you don't know, our team did a really cool thing where they knew this series on community was coming up. So they said, let's write a song just for this series. That's the healer in the room song we've been singing. It's available on all the platforms this weekend. You should go check it out. I think it's pretty exciting. But when we sing the healers in the room, what we're not singing is that Jesus is guaranteed to fix all my problems. He can, he may. In fact, right now, I'm praying for a dear friend of mine who is at the end of what the doctors can do, and if Jesus doesn't step in, Jesus has only shot. So I'm praying that Jesus will do something like that for my friend. But when we sing that song, what we're primarily asking and reminding ourselves of is that Jesus is with us and Jesus is inside of us. And the most important miracle that Jesus has done or will ever do is taking us to heaven one day by forgiving us of our sins from dying on the cross. And whether Jesus physically heals my friend or not, he will heal him by taking him to heaven. And that's the biggest miracle. Which means when we sing the healers in the room, what we're saying is, Jesus, you're here. I'm not alone. But the reason we're not alone is because of the church. If you open the Bible to page one and read the Genesis creation account, you notice something interesting. Everything God creates, he calls good. When he creates man and woman, he calls it very good. But if you flip the page to Genesis chapter two, he actually calls something not good. He says, it's not good for man to be alone. Catch this, one of my friends pointed out, the original problem in the garden wasn't sin, it was loneliness. And you don't need me to rehash the stats you've heard about how we're more connected than ever, but more isolated than ever at the same time. I even read a story recently from Francis Chan in his book, Forgotten God, about when Francis Chan was a pastor of a local church and they had a guy join their church who had been previously part of a local gang. But this guy had met Jesus, he came to their church, he got really involved, he was serving, he was in a group, all the things. But at one point they noticed he just dropped off the face of the earth, he stopped coming, serving all the things. So they reached out to him and said, hey, wanted to check on you, make sure everything was okay. He said, you know, I guess church just didn't for people like me. He said, oh, church, church is for everybody. What, 
what's going on? He said, well, you know, I used to be in a gang and in a gang, we were like family. And when I came to church, you said you were like family, but I experienced more family in my gang than ever did in church. So I guess church just isn't for me. And he laughed. So here's my question for the culmination of this series. Is it possible that the church is the answer to the deep longing we have in our souls to be connected? Think about this. You don't need church to hear a sermon. I listened to several good sermons on YouTube this week. You don't need church to worship. I worship a lot with Spotify and could go to a Christian concert. I really need church for two things. To be part of a mission that's bigger than me and to have a connection so I don't live in isolation. In fact, the original word for church means community. It means assembling. It means coming together. So we've got to figure out how to do this. How do we experience community the way God designed it? That's what we're gonna dig into today. So the sermon is gonna have two movements. First, we're going to look at how Jesus modeled relationships. Then we're gonna use some scriptures to get three applications of how we can do the same, okay? So we're gonna open to Luke 6, verse 12. One day, soon afterward, Jesus went up on a mountain to pray and he prayed to God all night. At daybreak, he called together all of his disciples and chose 12 of them to be his apostles. Here are their names. Simon, whom he named Peter. Andrew, Peter's brother. James, John. Philip, Bartholomew. Matthew, Thomas. James, son of Alphaeus. Simon, who is called the Zealot. Judas, son of James. And the other Judas, Judas Iscariot, who later betrayed him. So this scripture is where Jesus selects the 12 men who will be his apostles. Anybody who follows Jesus is a disciple, but he selects these 12 to be apostles. So look at that word in verse 13, apostles. Apostle was a unique office in the early church. And it was only in the early church, because I'll show you a list of scriptures. One qualification to being an apostle is you had to have seen the risen Jesus as listed by these scriptures. We're not gonna read those. I just want you to understand that. No one today can be an apostle because no one today has seen the risen Jesus. Verse 12, look again, says he prayed all night. It's reminding me of an experience I had in college when I was able to study in London for a summer and I had a little tiny local church I was a part of there and I'd become friends with a girl who was part of another local church there. It was a little bigger church. One day I saw her in the cafeteria. She said, hey, if you don't have any plans Friday night, my church is doing this prayer service thing. You should come with me. I said, all right, let's check it out. And she said, it starts at 10, so let's head over at 9.30. I thought it was kind of weird that a prayer service started that late, but whatever, maybe they're targeting young people, let's go. So we meet up, we walk to the church, we go inside. It starts much like our church service did today. There's several worship songs, it's really engaging, we're all worshiping. Then the leader gets up, takes a microphone, and gives a little welcome, and makes us feel comfortable, and leads us in a group prayer. Then he says this, I know... Some of you all are thinking there's no way you can pray for the next 12 hours straight till 10 a.m., but you can do it. <laughs> at which point I look at this girl with big eyes and she looks back at me with big eyes and she mouths the words, I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I 
So we prayed for about an hour in the little prompts they had, and then we went back to our dorm rooms and went on with our weekend. But as I recall that experience, I realized the reason we didn't pray for 12 hours straight is we didn't at that moment have a compelling burden that necessitated it. Many of us, maybe most of us here at one time or another have had a compelling burden where we, like Jesus, prayed all night for something, didn't we? And Jesus knows the selection of these apostles is so critical. It is so important for the future of the mission that I'm going to call the church, that I have to spend all night praying to God to get this right. But here's the main thing to point out, verse 13. He called all of his disciples, chose 12 to be apostles. The word disciple means apprentice. Jesus had many disciples, but out of that, he chose 12 apostles. This is one of those stories that I really hope we can have instant replay of things in heaven for, because I want to know exactly how this went down, because it reads like it was a schoolyard pick for kickball. It, it, this is what it kind of reads like is this, if Jesus gets all his disciples together and he says, uh, okay, let me look around here. I spent all night praying about this. So I think I'm going to know what I'm going to do. Um, let's see. I need you from E-Town. You, you won and you come here. And um, you from Indiana. No, I actually don't need you. And <laughs> you from Bullet. Yeah, you're, you're good. Come over here. And Blankenbaker. Nope, nope, don't need that. Uh, one from South Lou. You come over here. And y'all didn't laugh at the Blankenbaker joke, but you laughed at Indiana. <laughs> They're hating over here, guys. I'm just telling you. But it, that's what it seems like Jesus does. Is he calls all his disciples and he just picks 12. If that's what it went down, and, and I was one of the disciples who didn't get picked, here's what I would have done. I would have kind of wait till everybody else left. You know, other disciples are going home, back to their jobs, whatever, and I would have gone on. Hey, Jesus, can you come here? Come here, just, just, need, just need a minute. Listen, you know, I get the whole 12 apostle thing, um, and uh, I, I know why you didn't pick me because I was standing next to my buddy Chris, and, and I know about Chris, like I, I get why you didn't pick him, but Jesus, I'm all in. And I've heard the whole, pick up your cross. I'm, I'll pick up my cross. I'll leave everything. I'll leave, leave, you know, what's going on at home. I'll leave my work. I'm in, I just, you know, where, where are we going next? If I had done that, Jesus would have looked at me, I, I think with a smile and definitely with kindness and said, hey, Carl, appreciate it. We're good. <laughs> you can go on home. And I've had to. Because Jesus was very intentional about his relationships. I wanna show you with my little drawing tool here again, how Jesus does relationships today. He has an outer circle. Don't make fun of my circles. That I'll call the crowd. This was all of his disciples. We don't know how many there were. I mean, many dozens, several hundred, we don't know. Within that, he said, I need another circle of my 12 apostles that I'm just gonna today call Jesus community. These are the people who are with him all the time, who would later be commissioned to start the church and begin seeking and saving the lost. Now, let me show you another scripture real quick. We'll jump to Luke 8. In Luke 8, you may know the story where Jesus is asked by a dad, hey, come to my house, my daughter's dying. And Jesus says, okay. But on the way, they get word, hey, it's too late, she died. Jesus says, no, let's go. And then in, in Luke 8, 51, when he arrived at the house, Jesus wouldn't let anyone go in except Peter, 
John and James and the parents. He lets the other nine apostles stay outside. He takes in those three with the parents and he raises that girl from the dead. Amazing miracle. And this becomes a pattern of Jesus where multiple times he says, hey, I just need you three. The other nine, you can wait out here and you three come with me. One is the raising of Jairus' daughter, we just read. A second is what's called the transfiguration when Jesus takes just those three up on top of a mountain. They experience the presence of the father and the presence of the old prophets, Moses and Elijah. And then praying in the garden right before he's arrested, Jesus has all of his apostles, but he says, hey, I just need you three to pray with me over here, a little prayer huddle. So if you look at my little drawing again, Jesus has his community, but within that, he even has another circle that I like to call his crew. Your crew are the people who know you inside and out. These are the people you do life with. In fact, in the garden, in that prayer time, Jesus says to them, my soul is crushed. Your crew are the people you text and call when your soul is crushed. Think about this. Look at the circles. Jesus loved everyone. That doesn't mean everyone got access to him. Jesus came to serve everyone. That mean, doesn't mean he could do it all one-on-one. -on -one. Jesus came to change the world. He did that by pouring into a few. So the crowd got the most visible. The community got the most time. The crew got the most intimate. Now, there is no command in scripture that you have to have these three circles that Jesus has. I just think probably Jesus knew what he was doing when it came to relationships. In fact, there's now research and modern data that backs up what Jesus did. There's an Oxford anthropologist named Robin Dunbar, and he wanted to see how many friends is one capable of having. And what he found is really these three circles. He said, you know, you can have in your crowd probably about 150 people. That's really all you're capable, the average person, of having. He said, there's another circle within that. Jesus had 12, but the research says you can have up to 50, possibly. I'm thinking that's the real extreme extrovert. And Jesus had three in his crew. The research from this Oxford guy says you can have up to five people. To be relationally healthy, we need all three of these circles. The introvert needs a crowd. The extrovert needs a crew. How do we do it? I wanna jump around to a few different scriptures now and give you three applications that I think will lead you to having a crew in the way that Jesus did. We're gonna start in the book of Acts. The book of Acts describes the birth of the early church and specifically how they were meeting together at the beginning is what I wanna point out, Acts 2.46. Look at the two things here. They worshiped together at the temple and they met in homes. They got together in the big group they got together in the small group. And here's how I would just apply this for us. Put yourself in the right environments. I like that word environment when it comes to church growth. The thing it makes me think of is a seed. If you want to grow a seed, you know, sometimes kindergartners will do this this year, is they give it the right soil and the right amount of sunlight and the right amount of water. And typically, 
When you put it in the right environment, a seed will grow. The same is true in your Christian life. You put yourself in a worship environment and typically it connects your heart to the heart of God. You put yourself in a Bible study environment and typically you begin walking more in the truth of the gospel. You put yourself in a relational environment and typically you will make friends in time. Are you guaranteed for those things to happen? No, but typically... When you put yourself in the right environment, those things happen. Now, you may have to do it more than once. I made a mistake in my first year or so of ministry of working in a church. I'd get on a stage like this and a group sign-up season like this, and I would cast a vision and say, hey, we want you to get in a group because these are the people you'll do life with. Pretty big promise. Problem was then I joined a group. And I had one person in my group who was really awkward and another person who didn't want to follow Jesus and another person who was tempting me not to follow Jesus and another person who was only late, late all the time and it seemed to not care. And I realized in my vision casting for the church, I had overpromised and underdelivered. Here's what's much more likely is you'll join a group at church, be part of that group for two years. And at the end of it, you'll say, you know what? I made a friend. I'm gonna stay friends with that one person. And then you'll get another group and you'll be in that group maybe one, three, five years. And at the end of that group, you'll realize, oh, I have another friend that I'm gonna stay friends with for a long time. And you do that for many years and even multiple decades. And at the end of your Christian life, you can look back and you say, man, because of connecting in the church, I got a community and, and deeper than that, I got a crew. And it happened because you put yourself in environments for that to happen. By the way, I just want to call it out. Every group in any church, almost every group in any church will have an awkward person in it. It's just true. And if you're thinking right now, well, my group doesn't have an awkward person. Everybody else knows who it is. But if you're willing to take a a risk and put yourself in an environment like that, we want you to uh, text groups to 733-733. And remember, just because you tried it once and it didn't work doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. It doesn't mean there's something wrong with groups. It just means you got to put yourself in another environment. So once you're in a right environment, what do you do? Let's look at two scriptures. First John chapter 2. Because of the miraculous signs Jesus did in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, many began to trust him. Isn't that sentence beautiful? But then this next sentence makes me laugh out loud. But Jesus didn't trust them because he knew all about people. (laughs) He knew what was in each person's heart. But think about it. In spite of that, Jesus still made himself vulnerable by, if you read on in the Gospel of John, sharing vulnerably from his heart and also sharing, uh, being vulnerable physically by dying on the cross. Doctors Cloud and Townsend in their book, Safe People, say that to love is to make yourself vulnerable. To love is to open the possibility of being wounded. Paul understood this principle. It's why he wrote 2 Corinthians 6. He says, hey, friends in Corinth, Our hearts are open to you. There's no lack of love on our part. So if you combine John 2 and 2 Corinthians 6, we find that to find our crew, the Christian approach is to not be naive to how sinful people are, but we still take a risk to love in spite of that. Here's the way I'd say it. Test it. Test it. 
When you get in an environment to connect, you got to test to see how strong it is. The thing this reminds me of is when I was growing up in Louisville, there was a pond behind my house that maybe once a year would freeze over. When that happened, I called up my friend Matt in the neighbor. I said, hey, it's frozen, come on over. And we'd do the same thing. We'd first throw some rocks on it to see if it was strong enough to hold the rocks. And then we'd get down right next to it. We'd kind of put a little weight on it. And if it held us, we'd go a little farther out. And if we fell through, it was only a few inches deep there. Go change shoes, go on with our day. But if it held us there, then we'd scoot out a little bit more. And then we'd scoot out a little bit more. And if it held us, we'd just run all over the pond, had a good old time. That's what you do when you put yourself in a Christian environment to connect is you test it, you share about your marriage problems and you see, do the people in the group wag their finger at you or do they come around and pray for you? You share the raw emotion you feel towards God and you find out, do they say, well, you shouldn't feel like that or do they open the Psalms and say, you know what, David felt like that too. Let's read some scripture. You take a risk and share about the abuse you experienced as a child. And as they pray over you, you figure out, are they actually preaching at me through the prayer or are they just thanking God for his grace and mercy? You test over time, you build your crew. I mentioned earlier that Oxford anthropologist who came up with the numbers of the circles that we can have. There's another researcher, I believe, who built on that same research. This guy was from Kansas. His name was Jeffrey Hall. And he wanted to see, is there any data on how you can move people into those circles? What he found is the circles of your friendships are all based on time, direct correlation. So for example, for your crowd, if you want somebody to be in this level, it takes 50 hours. If you want somebody to be part of your community, it typically takes 90 hours with someone before you each feel you're in that circle of friendship. And the biggest one of all that we're probably all wondering is this one. It takes 200 hours with someone before each of you will say, you know what? That's one of my best friends right there. Isn't that interesting? You know, probably if you're like me, it makes you recall some things, some experiences you've had in life where you think of, oh, I was on that team and I, I probably spent about 90 hours with them and those people were my community while I was on that team. May even make you think of a roommate you had for a long time. You say, man, we definitely spent 200 hours together and when I was rooming with them, they were my crew just by default. And this makes sense. And this is how we build these relationships. This does make me wonder though, how many of us, I've been guilty of this, have complained of not having community, have complained of not having a crew, but we didn't really put in the time. You know, we joined a group for three sessions and two hours each and we said, oh, that's not for me. That's a waste of time. I can't make friends there. But, but we didn't give it the time that was needed to build deep relationships. Just worth thinking about. Let's go to our third application. It comes from 1 Timothy 4. It says, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Now, this explicitly is calling out those of you who are young, middle school, high school, uh, those of you in your 20s, set an example. But you can be faithful to scripture and really switch out that underlying section with multiple other phrases. You could say, don't let anyone look down on you because you're a new believer, but set an example. 
Don't let anyone look down on you because you're a widower. Don't let anyone look down on you because you have a physical disability. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're divorced. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're a UK fan. Don't let anyone look down on you but set an example. Here's one of the tough things about following Jesus. You have to go first. The hard thing, I, I think the hardest thing about finding your crew is you can't wait for other people to initiate. This is not a passive thing. You have to bleed first. If you've been to New York City, you have seen on the sub, in the subway stations on the walls those beautiful mosaic works of art and they're old and they're grimy in kind of a cool way. I love the image of a mosaic uh, as a metaphor for the church because a mosaic, you think about it, it's a bunch of pieces of broken stones or glass that if you gave them to me, be trash. But in the hands of an artist can create something beautiful. I believe that's what the church is. That when the world gets to know us, they look at us and say, y'all aren't worth very much. We say, we know. But in the hands of our creator, he makes us into something beautiful called the church. But here's a temptation. There's a New York subway, the Morgan Ave subway station that on the pillars has some beautiful mosaics to show you what station you're at. And if you look at that picture, you see that some of the pieces are chipped off and, and it's a little broken still, but it shows its character. It shows its beauty. But a couple years ago, they were in tight budget season, I guess, or they're getting away from what makes those stations beautiful because one of the Morgan Ave subway mosaics had to be replaced and they didn't replace it with a mosaic. They replaced it with, with a printout of a mosaic. So from afar, it looks beautiful and broken and like a work of art. But when you get up close, you realize, oh, it's just a facade. It's just a fake. It's not real. This is the temptation of every Christian is we know we're broken we know God is the one who's put us together, but it's to live in such a way that from afar, that's how it looks. But when people get really close, it's just a facade because we're not real and we're not open. When you put yourself in an environment to build a crew after you've tested it out, there comes a point where you have to go first and say, here's my stuff, I'm bleeding. Here's my sin. Here's my doubt. Here are my struggles. Even thinking of the secrets we've talked about the last two weeks, do people know your secrets? In some of the men's work I do, we have a phrase we challenge each other to share that goes like this. The truth I don't want you to know about me is blank. That'll put a pit in your stomach real quick but that'll build your crew real quick. And that's why we need grace. Because you are not good enough. We are not good enough. We are fallen. But thanks be to God who gives us victory in Christ Jesus. He forgives our sin. He makes us white as snow. 
So when the father looks at you, he does not see what you've done. He sees how he created you and who you are in Jesus. And if you have accepted him, he sees the perfection of Christ. If you do not have that victory, claim forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. Because when you do, the father does not see the ugliness of your sin, he sees the perfection of his son. I wanna be part of a church of bloodstained pews. I wanna be part of a Christ-centered community where it is safe to bleed because it's rooted in grace and truth. We started this series by talking about a 900-year-old church building in Angoville, France that was a medic center on D-Day and has literal bloodstained pews. I got to visit that church. It was beautiful. Stone floor, really old looking pews, beautiful altar area, beautiful stained glass. But here's what crushed me. Today it's just a museum. There are no sermons. There is no worship. There are no baptisms, there is no community. It's a church in name only. And Southeast, we must get that the natural pull of any organization, including the church, is to become a museum to what once was. But the mission of God is too important for us to have clean pews. There are too many hurting people who need the grace and truth that only Jesus can give. So we will be a church that storms the gates of hell, that drags people from the flames, brings them to one of our many aid stations so that they may be saved, so that they may know you are not alone. Jesus came for you and we are here in his name. And it starts with us building the right kind of community that they wanna be a part of where our vulnerability collides with the truth of the gospel so that we can be on mission. I love this church and Jesus is too good and the church, his church is too special for us to not run after this with everything we've got. Let's do this. Let's pray together. Jesus, we know all too well the truth of Genesis 2. It is not good to be alone. Every one of us knows that. So God, I pray for this church, our church, your church, that it will be a place of connection that's rooted in mission. Because we've learned in this series, we're hurting. We know it. And we need you and we need other people. So Jesus, may we go first. So we will be a connected church that you, deserve, you desire that is storming the gates of hell to draw others 
into the sweetness that is knowing the grace and truth found in you. We love you, Lord. Thank you for coming for us. It is in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening. If today's message made you realize you need to take your next step with Jesus, we would love to help you with that. You can connect with us on any of our social media platforms throughout the week or visit our website at southeastchristian.org. And if you want to hear more content like this, you can check out our sermons podcast or our one at a time podcast. Both can be found everywhere. Podcasts are available. Have a great week.